Hello and welcome to Marketing Connected. In the lead up to the Digital Marketing Asia 2020 virtual conference in November, we will be chatting with our conference speakers on specific issues in the world of marketing, from digital transformation to customer experience and ad fraud, among others. Join us over the next few weeks as we unravel the ins and outs of digital marketing and hear from industry players on how you can jumpstart your journey. In this episode, Chief Commercial Officer Joseph Chua and Regional Planning Lead Mark Bellamy from Icon Digital share with our Regional Editor Razwana Manjar on the key ingredients to creating a successful network effect. They also discuss how not to cannibalize the brand DNA when creating that effect and the role that creativity plays in today's tech-focused economy. Hi, guys. Hi. How are you both doing? We're good, yeah. we're good. Yeah, very good, thank you. Great, good to speak to you. Mark's in uh, Singapore and I'm in Shanghai. Yeah, Joe, while I have you here, tell us a little bit about Icon and your time in Shanghai. So I managed to get back to Shanghai about uh, two months ago and uh, business here has been pretty good. Uh, China has recovered from COVID, but you know, I do believe that hopefully all the other markets in Southeast Asia will progressively recover from COVID-19 and we'll get back to normality as soon as possible. Uh, thank you so much, Rizwana and the team at Marketing Interactive for inviting us today for the podcast. Uh, what I'd like to do, though, is I'd like to speak a little bit about, give a bit of background about myself and talk about Icon. Mm-hmm. So uh, my name is Joseph. I'm the Chief Commercial Officer and the Managing Partner of Icon Global. Icon is an extremely interesting company. We were born 15 years ago, started in Shanghai. Today, we have about seven offices around the world. We have four offices in China. Uh, namely that in Shanghai, Shenyang, Xi'an, and Guangzhou. And outside of China, we have three offices, Dubai, Singapore, and Malaysia. So I think a little bit about Icon is we're a technology company mm-hmm. at the core of what we do. In 2016 and 17, uh, we had an opportunity to join WPP. So we were rebranded as Mirim in China. And in 2018, uh, we felt that it was best to take the company private and independent again. So my partner, Andrew Tong, uh, took back the company and we rebranded the company to Icon. So that's a little bit of history about Icon. Uh, we've grew up with the entire internet. So in the early days, the company started doing websites. Subsequently, because of the app boom, we started doing a lot of apps. At a peak, we were the top five app producer in China. We turn on average of about 2,000 apps a year. Wow. And then the IoT era came. Uh, we had a very great opportunity working in the Shanghai government to roll out Wi-Fi and entertainment for all the Shanghai buses. To today, if you take a bus in Shanghai, yeah, the Wi-Fi system and the entertainment system was done by Icon. And we did a lot of IoT projects. So we built smart fridges, everything from smart fridges to smart sewing machines to drones. That was pretty much a lot of the hardware work we did. Mm. Uh, we did a lot of Industry 4.0 projects, helping clients automate their factories, uh, allowing people to basically send an image on the internet and they're able to print out a T-shirt and deliver it to your house in three days. We did that with Lansdale. So we literally grew up with the internet. Uh, last three years, the company's focus has been on two areas. Uh, first area has been focused on AI. And I think a lot of our clients today are making use of our services to create their own AI, whether it's machine learning to help to learn from the data they're collecting or it's helping to build applications of the AI 
So in the case of MasterCard, we work very closely with MasterCard to create AI copywriting and AI taxonomy. And I think the other thing we've moved a lot into is the rise of Chinese digital. Mm. So whether it's the WeChat or the TikToks of the world, helping our clients set up e-commerce against this ecosystem, mm. a lot of travel retail related work, mini programs. This has been pretty much quite a fair bit of, of, of a business that came from the Chinese digital ecosystem. Mm. I think to date, we've helped about more than 30 different travel re- retail related organizations get China ready. And that's been a huge pillar of our business. We wow. came to Singapore uh, in early 2020, yep. just before COVID-19. We're, and we came to Malaysia uh, two months later in March 2020. Mm. Currently, we're about 38 people in Singapore and Malaysia. We set up the Dubai operations in late 2019. So this year alone, uh, ICON has set up four offices from zero. And that new batch of offices represents about 80 people in our staff headcount. We're about close to 300 people as of this month. So yeah, that's a little bit about ICON. That's fantastic, Joe. Good to see you guys doing so well. And as you mentioned, WeChat and TikTok, and I'm sure we could have a whole different conversation around these two brands alone, uh, given the current geopolitical situ- situation involving tech brands. Um, but before that, let's find out a little bit about Mark. Mark, tell us about your role as regional planning lead. Um, and when did you join the company? Hey, um, I'm a pretty fresh signing, actually. Uh, I've only been here since March, but I've been in Singapore for for a couple of years before then. And and then I was in London. Um, I think the the role for us with, I guess, planning is a bit a bit of a weird one, right? So it's starting to move to to strategy. Everybody wants to be a strategist now, not a planner. Um, And so I think that's kind of the role for us as we start to mature as a business. And I think the the old silos of planning, account management and creative starts to get a little bit more blurred mm. is to try and build out with the business. Okay, if we are, if there's a business problem within a client, whether that is campaign based, whether that's a technology solution based, actually the role of planning and strat is to just go in there and try and frame that problem, try and frame that problem for the, for the client and then translate that back to the relative team to, to try and execute on it. So that's kind of the, the best bit of planning that's what it should be at its course that that's what i'm trying to do now is just just build that out at a global level for us and and as we scale across the region which is yeah very interesting because it's, it's done very differently in in each market i love the way you guys described your business and at a time like this it's great that you guys are actively growing across the region and your teams and all your expertise as well and i know i can believe that um, very strongly that defensible brands create networks, which you then describe as services and experiences that interconnect with each other uh, to become more embedded in the lives of consumers. Now, can you break that down for us? Yeah, sure. So I think look, the network effect is it's an economist term, uh, essentially, and it's been around for a few years. But I think now is a sort of inflection point for our industry where it's becoming much, much more relevant. And in simple terms, it's the network effects are created when the value of your product, your experience or the service you provide as a brand grows the more participants you have. And that doesn't just mean the more customers you have. That means the more participants, more people are involved. That could be other businesses you work with. That could be uh, the actual extension, the activators of your service, your product, the, the salespeople at the front of the counter. And so if they create more value, the more people are part of it, you create this exponential brand growth. Uh, and I think the best, easiest example for us to understand globally 
is whether you look at a Grab or, or an Uber that has a similar model. So if you think about Grab, right, so the more drivers you have, the more users you can attract into your network because the better service they're going to get. And, and actually that works vice versa. So the more users, the more riders you have, the more drivers are going to come into your network. So it's kind of a self-enriching uh, network in that respect. And actually even to push Grab a step further than an Uber and, and really why I think they've, they've won and been more defensible in this, in this region is because they've then, then actually started to pivot that towards food towards food delivery as well actually increasing and starting to uh, increase the network of their drivers by not just connecting with riders but also connecting with someone who wants a delivery on on a saturday night right so that in a nutshell is kind of what we mean by making you, you more defensible the the cost of leaving is is higher mm. um, which means that you're more likely to stay with that product or service so you're further integrating and embedding yourself into the life of the consumer yeah yeah, exactly that. The more necessary you are and the, the harder it is to leave that network yeah. uh, in a positive way, not, not, in, a, <laughs> not, in, not in a trapping way. Uh, that's, how, that's what we really mean by, by the network effect. Right. So creating a network requires breaking down of silos, of working together and collaborations and really thinking out of the box. What are some of the key considerations to take note of when forging these new partnerships? Yeah, well, I think it's really important when we talk about building network effects. If you take a B2B brand as an example, that's not just about supplying more brands and it's not just about supplying brands with bigger consumer bases. That's one part of that in scale. Mm. But actually, the objective is to enable them to achieve their goals and actually all be fundamental to them reaching more customers, not just working with bigger brands. So I guess the the big kahuna, as they say, for, for network brands is Facebook. That's always kind of the ultimate example. And there's lots of ways we can show how they've won in this respect. My favorite one is that Mark Zuckerberg was, was never really satisfied with just connecting users to their friends or actually giving you a community where you could connect to like-minded people. That was kind of the basis of the product and what drew people in. Mm -hmm. But actually, he wanted Facebook to be this necessity to your daily life and actually start to spread out laterally almost within your, your daily life when you wake up to when you go to sleep. And mm -hmm. actually, if you look at that as from a B2B angle, the best example, I think, is how they built the single sign-on functionality into how you can then sign into, with your Facebook credentials, into an e-commerce site uh, into a gym membership for example and that's actually creating value both sides of that connection right it's creating a better experience for the user because I don't have to think of a new email address I don't have to think of a new password I can just one click and I'm in mm -hmm. and also the brand then gets to access to a much richer set of data and actually understand the profile of that person that's coming into their network and mm -hmm. can provide them a better experience and mm -hmm. if you think about that as, as embedding rather than just embedding as a daily life of one user really Facebook have, <laughs> have embedded themselves into the entire ecosystem of the web yeah. And so actually they're, they're a necessity into your sign on into actually how you then interact with those brands. So that's really a good example, I think, of rather than just trying to go and create their own uh, e-commerce platform for every different product for Facebook, they understood the value of actually being the connector rather than always being the brand that you engage with. What if I'm a brand that's known for a specific product in a certain vertical and, and you know, I'm quite well embedded uh, in my DNA? How do I not cannibalize my own brand DNA if I want to create this network? I think the crux of that is 
and it's a little bit of a cliche, but it's not looking at your customer uh, as either a business or as a customer. Look at them as an individual and a person that has 24 hours in their day and try and understand the other brands that they work with and the other brands that are essential to them uh, getting value from that daily experience. Or as a business, what are the other uh, businesses that they work with to achieve their objectives? And then try and find the obvious ways that you can add value there. So try and take a little bit of... Um, more of an open stance to say, okay, this is the role that I play uh, in, in, in helping my, my customer reach where they need to get to. Um, I think a good example of this is, I'll go back to the Uber one again. There's quite a famous partnership there between Uber and Spotify, where they actually started to integrate the Spotify service into any Uber rider's journey. Right? So it actually said you could then just plug in or just do it remotely from your phone. You could play whatever songs you wanted to listen to while you're in, in the cab. I think that's a good example of just finding that seamless integration where a partnership just makes sense to the user because it fits into that, that journey. So the base of it is just try and look a little bit more broadly at the journey that your customers have and find ways to work with other brands or or other entities that are part of it. Fantastic points, Mark. What about you, Joe? What do you think are the key ingredients to successfully creating a network effect in today's cluttered world of marketing? Sure. Thanks, Ress. I think the starting point is always you start from a position of strength. So today, if you're a very good B2C brand, you start from a position of strength or what greatest affinity you have with your users. So many of the network effects we built, and I just want to draw a distinction here so that at least the listeners can understand the difference between the network effect and the ecosystem. Uh Today, a lot of brands are talking about building ecosystems. Apple has an ecosystem. Huawei has an ecosystem. Consumer electronic brands are trying to build ecosystems in the online world and the offline world. Network effect is slightly different. Network effect is about the output of an ecosystem, whether you have real stickiness with your users. Right. That's really what a network effect judges. And I just wanted to draw that distinction. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I think you really start with a position of strength first. So if you look at Apple as a good example, they started first with the fact that they have a lot of loyal Apple lovers who love their products. That was really their start point. Mm. And then from there, they start to embed easier ways for the brand to interact with them. First in a B2C manner. And after that, they start to do B2B, where Apple and schools and education start to team up. And they start working with partners who generate content, which became the App Store. So if you, look, if you think about it, they always start with a position of strength first as a start point. And second, right, I think it's really about what type of activities you can create within this ecosystem to hold the ecosystem together. And in doing so, achieve the network effect. So what you see Apple doing, I think Apple is a great example, is that they start to organize a lot of events. They start to make themselves more into a community Mm. of users. They may not have a lot of SKU, but their SKUs are designed in a way that it's a complete interaction with a user. Mm. And then they start to form micro communities, people who like to play games, people who enjoy Apple movie, people who enjoy music. They all become sub-communities. But all of this in its combined totality is what creates a network effect for Apple. And the real value of Apple is in that network effect mm-hmm. because they're able to very easily cross-sell, whether it's B to B, whether it's B to C, whether in the future it could be C to B, which was something to see that happen really for mm. many of the brands. So we think that the evolution of really helping our customers achieve growth, which is very much centered to what Icon is created for, is about helping brands create network effect. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'll give another example. 
which is a Chinese example. So there is a very interesting e-commerce company in China called Pinduoduo. And what Pinduoduo does is, while you have the Tmall or the Ali Group, which is very centered on Tier One and Tier Two city, and they have a competitor with JD.com, which is Jingdong, which focuses on Tier One and Tier Two.、Mm-hmm. Pinduoduo focuses on the forsaken market, which is Tier Three, Four, and Five. Okay. If you look at Chinese demographics, it's about 1.4 billion people. About 400 million people stay in coastal city and the tier one city of Beijing, Shanghai, Guangzhou, and Shenzhen.、Mm. So you actually have a billion people staying in tier three, four, and five.、Mm-hmm. And today, what Pinduoduo does is that it starts to create a network within tier three, four, and five around people who enjoy a great deal. So what Pinduoduo does is that its best value is it aggregates people who are interested in buying daily necessities or up and coming products, and it aggregates them a bit like Groupon into a group of people, but it's by the tens and twenty of thousands.、Right. So twenty thousand people want to buy a bottle of water, you and then they talk to the brand and say, "Give me your best price. I've got twenty thousand deals for you instantly." Wow! So that's what they're doing really well. They recognize that people want value in tier、mm-hmm. three, four, and five cities. And they aggregate it into a virtual network. Their network effect is Pinduoduo is known for creating the best value in the e-commerce market, and in doing so, is growing really fast. Today, it's the third largest e-commerce platform in China, and a lot of the brands are now barely waking up to see how to work with Pinduoduo. Wow, that's such a great example.、Um, I want to divert the conversation though a little bit towards creativity and technology, and this is one of my favorite topics. I, I have these conversations on almost on a daily basis.、Um, in today's day and age, we are so focused on the technology available in creating solutions, but technology can only go so far without the creative element. The vice versa is also true. What are your views on the role creativity plays in this tech-focused economy that we're living in? How can brands ensure that the the two work in tandem for the best results? Yeah, sure. And it's one of those buzzed conversations at the moment, right? And I, I think I really see the direction of wind changing in the creativity、uh, versus technology conversation, and really, it's the removal of that versus. I think most of the creative industry kind of. Has bulked at the introduction of technology, like AI, as a good example, into that creative process. It's, it's seen as a threat to existence, rather than necessarily as a cure to either declining budgets or, or the declining impact that we feel we might be able to have. And look, I've sat in those rooms, I've had those meetings where a new SaaS solution comes along that's built in with AI, and it's saying we can do all of your copywriting for all of your Facebook ads over the next year, and it's going to cost you X. And every copywriter in The room stares at the screen and goes, "Whoa, am I going to have a job in ten years' time?" And、yeah. that—that is just not how we see it, and that's how I don't think the industry is going to see it in the short term.、Mm. I, the the analogy I like is that technology should be the Iron Man suit to a creative Tony Stark, right? It, it's that exoskeleton that you wear that makes your ability better. It augments human intuition, human creativity, and it's it's very symbiotic in that relationship. Whether it's improving the speed at which you can actually create, and actually how you can turn an、uh, an idea and realize it, whether it's the scale, actually scaling that to different languages, for example, to make it more relevant to different markets, but still that core idea. Idea that is that is with the the human, or if it's precision, actually identifying an insight and being able to connect that to a creator more quickly and in real time. So, I think 
all of those come together, but the cornerstone is always that human intuition, right? So really think of it as, as the suit of armor that helps you be more powerful, not as something that's trying to, trying to steal your job. I don't think I can watch Iron Man the same way after this conversation, Mark. Um, turning my attention to Joe for a minute. Joe, what about you? Do you think that creativity is taking a backseat in today's conversations around marketing tech? I think in today's era, creativity is the comparative advantage for brands. And I always feel like technology is always about democratization of technology. So if you can buy tech, honestly speaking, any brand in your category can also procure similar technology because technology is not something which you as one brand can have. Yeah. Every brand can buy it. It's not a unique thing, but it is a necessary thing. I do feel that creativity is extremely important in today's day and age and it's never been a better time to be in the creative business. But you do have to understand how the tech works so that the job of creativity is not to replace the technology or the efficiency which technology provides, but rather is to enhance the value of the entire experience mm. or using both creative and tech to strengthen the network effect for businesses. So I do feel like I think they're on two fronts. Uh, one is this, uh, technology will constantly improve. If you're a believer in the Moore's Law, you know, I do believe that where we are at today, maybe 10 years from now, 15 years from now, you know, AI will come to a place in time whereby they will be able to generate full body copy, write KV from scratch. And we already started to make a lot of advancements in the aspect from an icon point of view. Mm -hmm. But I do feel that the importance of humanity's intuition you know, our ability to connect and see things which are otherwise insignificant and make the right decision against that. It's not something which can be replaced so easily by technology. Mm. I, I feel like the creative game or helping brands build up, you know, the network effect for them, helping brands achieve growth, is not something which full technology can take over. It's a bit like financial services. You know, while I would trust an AI robot to handle $500 or $1,000, but I won't spend $2 million investments with an AI robot. Humanity is still needed for such tasks because trust is something which on high amounts of money, humans are still not going to hand $2 million for AI to basically do such, such, such more advanced tasks. So I do think that it's very, very important for us to not forget the role of creativity in this process. Mm. I think number two is that creativity in today's day and age has never been easier to go to market. If you have a good idea, given the fact that, and it's executed against uh, media and platforms and tools available, allow you to quickly take a good idea and go to market a lot faster than where we were, say, five to 10 years ago. So this also helps to amplify a real power of a good idea the good power of a creative experience. We will be taking a short break. If you would like to join us at Digital Marketing Asia 2020 as we dive into topics such as transformation, data and analytics and e-commerce, head to conferences.marketing-interactive.com slash digital-marketing-asia. How can brands find the balance when marrying technology and creativity, Joe? There's so much tech out there. Um, sometimes it almost feels like you're adding on all these shiny new toys that are supposed to solve all your problems, but it just ends up as more cost to your organization. 
I think a couple of things. One is technology must solve an inherent business problem. Today, we do see a lot of clients chasing technology for the sake of technology's sake, doing it not simply to solve a business problem, but doing it simply to tick a box that they're trendy. We have a lot, I mean, yeah, we came across clients like that before. Yes, so I want to do it just because other people are doing it or yeah. it's like cool and trendy. Like it tick the box that I'm really fancy. I mean, we have that, you know, and I think what we've been trying to work a lot for clients to share with them and to help guide them is technology must solve an inherent business problem and mm. there must be a general direction of, you know, I call it the first principle of what you need to fix. So I can give you an example. You know, we have clients who are asking us for, you know, you know uh, basically uh, industry 4.0. Mm-hmm. when they start using automated robots or robotics to help to solve, you know, their factory production issues. And sometimes we just tell them you don't need that because you're only replacing two staff's job. And mm-hmm. honestly, the salary is relatively low. So there is very little ROI on your horizon. You might take 10 years to break even that device and 10 years later, there will be a new device. So no, technology doesn't solve every single problem. Uh, and I do think it needs to start from what is the business problem you're trying to solve? And where is the vision or the business model we're trying to achieve? And tech simply plays a role in helping to alleviate that. I think the second part, you know, which is oftentimes a, a bigger issue is people buy tech piecemeal without knowing what the ultimate goal they want to achieve. So they mm-hmm. buy it, you know, they buy a bit from here, a bit from there, you know, or they buy the whole suite and then yeah. later they figure out that they don't know how to use it or they're not willing to invest in it. So what we tell our clients typically is the tech is 30% of the job. It's not going to solve your problem. The 70% is rolling it out, managing the change management, making sure you're properly using the tools. And that's where you can get the full value. So we've had clients in the past where they buy like the Ferrari of systems, but in the end, they're driving it worse than a Toyota. Now, B2B brands have the most challenging model to build network effects as their user base is smaller and more complex as an enterprise. Can you share um, maybe some examples about great B2B2C models? Sure. So uh, the thing is with the, the B2B2C model, and, and as Joe alluded to earlier, there's so many variations of this now. <laughs> it's, it's really understanding. I think at your core, you, what well, I would say that you need to lose the ego a little bit and actually lose a little bit of the, the ego around your brand because B2B2C at its core is that you have to understand that in order for you to win as a brand, your businesses and your network has to win. It has to be mutually beneficial. So MasterCard's a really good example of this. I think that we can kind of all understand because we all pay for things every day mm-hmm. is that MasterCard can't just develop solutions. They can't just develop products and marketing that's going to encourage you to go out and take out a UOB card, for example, because actually if they don't then focus on driving spend into merchants the the whole wheel doesn't turn around so they need to create that fuel that's going to actually start working for every part of their network which includes the issuing bank it includes the merchant and it also includes the the end user as well so you have to understand what technology is going to actually help and make that easier and make that more effective so I think also a part of that, and really interestingly, when you look at something like a MasterCard, who's sort of effectively in a duopoly, really, with uh, with Visa, although I'm not sure Amex would appreciate me saying that, um, is that they you have to be quite agnostic about how 
you work with competitors as well because the reality is that the understanding of the end user is that they're taking out a uob card right maybe they don't understand or think whether it's a visa or a mastercard so and a lot of their products you don't see because they're going on in the background right it's going on in the ether their software so actually as the end user you don't understand that you're paying at a mastercard till versus a visa one mm. so ha- being having that openness and agnosticism to actually understand okay for these merchants i need to integrate my payment systems with my banks into a visa card system that is a necessity sometimes when you're trying to build up and and stay relevant and i think particularly for for growing and emerging brands that are brands sorry that are trying to steal some of that market share you have to have that openness to understand how can you uh integrate into a bigger system and then start to to build your own through that Jill, what is the role that AI has played in building defensible B2B brands? I, I think we'll talk a little bit about what we're doing for one of our clients in China called Mway. So Mway is an American brand. It's been in China for about 20 years. What we do for them is actually we build tools. And interesting enough, many of the tools are powered by AI technology. So Mway's business model is they work with people called ABOs which are, think of them as little SMEs or distributors, which are individuals, and they help to sell the products of Mway. There are 3 million ABOs we work with in China. 3 million, maybe half of Singapore's population. So what we do with them is we actually train the ABOs to become content creators, become better salespeople, and we do that through building tools for them. That's what ICANN does. So we've already proven our case that with tool and without tool, your growth rates are very different. We've also proven to them that when you have 3 million people generating content for you mm. to talk to customers and pulling out the best practice contents and recycling it throughout the entire network, you're better able to handle the onslaught of content needs within a very crowded social media environment. Mm. I mean, it's only so much film you know, a brand can produce on a yearly basis. And so what we do from the B2B perspective is this is a good example of B2B2C, right? Is we build AI tools for our brands to allow them to handle a lot of things at scale. Yeah. And I think that works a lot better. You know, it's easier. It's like you give a man a fish and you teach a man to fish. There's a big difference. So hopefully we've taught 3 million ABOs in China how to fish. And what we've done is we created a technology called Smart Keyboard. So you know the keyboard on your phone? Yeah. Uh, we link that up to a CMS and we have an AI layer behind it. And yeah. so every time you type, we predict what the customers are talking to you about. And we give you suggested responses. We also allow you to pull content directly from the digital asset management system. And we also help you generate content so you can immediately respond to the customer. Wow. Think of it as an AI assistant for a brand. Yeah. yeah. Today, 3 million uh, ABOs are using it on a daily basis. Wow. I do think that AI will continue to be very important for brands, uh, namely in a couple of sectors, customer service being one, helping to generate content will be another. Helping brands be more efficient in the way they buy media will be a third. And I think the fourth example we start to see really, really come out is helping them make sense of the data that's coming in. I mean, everybody talks about data as the new oil, but I would say three-quarter organizations don't know how to extract the oil, process it, and make it fuel ready for their big vehicle. So I think there's good news is that the market is at least collecting the data. But the bad news is many brands still don't process it they don't manage it. They don't build application on top of that layer. And that's what we hope to do more in Southeast Asia. You know, I think what's unique for ICANN is you know, we help to navigate the Western digital ecosystem and the Eastern ecosystem very well. Mm. And I would say that both of them are now digital powerhouses, whether it's technology from Europe or the US or Southeast Asia 
India, you know, whether it's technology from China, they're all equally good. We're not agnostic to any one of them, you know, purely agnostic. We go, whatever is the best for the job. But we've noticed that the focus of AI from country to country is very different. Mm. The technology that's available is very different. And hopefully we can harness a hybrid set for the clients in Southeast Asia to be able to build up a really strong future as they start to navigate B2B2C or as they start navigating to build networks with network effects for their brands in Southeast Asia. And how do you think the markets in SEA are coping with AI adoption? So across Southeast Asia, maybe I'll just build up the point. It does differ from market to market. Yeah. So maybe I'll just take, I will say that uh, Singapore government has done an awesome job. The guys at GovTech, they are really leading the charge of A, at least making data open, B, at least training up a workforce which is Python ready. So I do feel like in this circumstance in Southeast Asia, two thumbs up for Singapore. Uh, mm. Malaysia, we do see a lot of bright sparks coming out. We're working very closely with universities in Malaysia. Yeah to train up a set of AI talent. Uh, Indonesia also, we're starting to see really good AI talent come out. They're all very much in communities at the present moment. They're not really mainstream yet. Uh, but versus, I would argue, in the US, in Europe, in China, you know, that there's more AI talent there. Mm. And I do feel we've got a little bit of catching up to do as a region, but I do believe we'll get there. Uh, two enterprises are starting to look at AI at an application layer, but it's still relatively basic. Uh, basic machine learning, a bit of NLP, you know. Uh, yeah, I, but I do think that that will change because of COVID. I mean, a lot of brands are digitizing more this year than they did in the last 10 years. So, we, you know, we're pretty happy. Thanks, guys. Now, before I let you go, can you share with us what you will be speaking about at Digital Marketing Asia? Sure. I, I think one I definitely want to cover more in DMA with the team and some of our clients is to talk about two key topics, I think uh, the main topic we definitely want to cover is about social commerce. Today, I think there's a lot of discussion about public traffic, which is your programmatic and all of the, the various ways you can do marketing at a mass scale. Uh, okay. Today, what we're going to focus more in DMA is more on private traffic, which is social commerce. And we're going to talk about how AI has really helped to change this aspect, made it far more robust, made it more different. You know, we think that's a really important topic. And I do feel that, you know, uh, within Southeast Asia as a whole, we get more, I would say, uh, exposure to case studies in the West, you know, more case studies coming out of Europe or the US. But I don't think we have enough case studies coming out of China. So mm. hopefully we're able to take the Chinese case studies, you know, uh, copyright it and translate it into English and share that with everybody to learn from. Fantastic, guys. Thank you so much for this session. I learned so much and I can't wait to hear you uh, live when you guys are giving the presentation. Thanks once again. Great. Thank, Thank you, you so, so much, much for, yeah, it's been a great hour. Thank you for listening to Marketing Connected and stay tuned for another Digital Marketing Asia 2020 episode next week. If you are interested in signing up for the upcoming Digital Marketing Asia 2020 virtual conference, click the link attached to the episode description or head to www.marketing-interactive.com. We hope to see you there.